Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. The truth is really pure and never simple. Modern life would be very tedious if it were either. And modern literature, a complete impossibility. That wouldn't be at all a bad thing. Uh, Literary criticism is not your forte, my dear fellow. Don't try it. You should leave that to people who haven't been at a university. They do it so well in the daily papers. What you really are is a Bunburyist. I was quite right in saying you were a Bunburyist. You are one of the most advanced Bunburyists I know. Tom, what on earth do you mean? You have invented, Dominic, a very useful younger brother called Ernest, in order that you may be able to come up to town as often as you like. I have invented an invaluable permanent invalid called Bunbury, in order that I may be able to go down into the country whenever I choose. Bunbury is perfectly invaluable. If it wasn't for Bunbury's extraordinary bad health, for instance, I wouldn't be able to dine with you at Willis's tonight, for I have been really engaged to Aunt Augusta for more than a week. So that was The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde. I think we can safely describe that as one of the ripest performances (laughs) that we've uh, heard for a long time in the rest is history. Tom, we're out here in the sunshine in Washington, D.C. Annoying Americans with your... (laughs) Affected. Yeah, with your affected Affected, indeed, effete tones. So if you hear dogs... Helicopters. uh, You know that uh, that's because we're out here in Washington. And Tom, our subject today... It's a cracking subject, isn't it? The Trials of Oscar Wilde. The Trials of Oscar Wilde. And we began with Importance Being Earnest, which is his most famous play. Gloriously funny play. Jack Worthing, Algernon Moncrief, two kind of young gentlemen about town in London. Algernon Moncrief's terrifying aunt, Augusta, who is Lady Bracknell, as in a Handberg. All that kind of thing. I wondered how long it would take us. Well, we'll get it straight in. And I have a particular fondness for that play because it inspired the very first piece of writing for which I got paid, which was a play called The Importance of Being Frank, which reworked the plot of The Importance of Being Earnest to tell the story of Oscar Wilde himself. So um, in that play, Jack Worthing became Oscar Wilde. Algernon Moncrief became Bosie, Lord yeah. Alfred Douglas. You are an excellent Bosie, Tom. Thank you very much. Say. Who was Wilde's lover. And... Aunt Augusta, Lady Bracknell, became the Marquis of Queensbury. Oh, very good. Who was Bosie's father and who was so furious about the affair that Wilde and Douglas were having that he kind of went around London accusing Wilde of being a somdomite. It's kind of misspelled it. Opposing somdomite, I think, was the... uh... And Wilde then charged him with libel, came to court. The evidence that Queensbury rustled up was so devastating for Wilde's case that he withdrew the libel accusation. And then he, Wilde in turn, got arrested. There were two trials and he ended up being sent to prison. He did. It's the story, isn't it? It's the, it's the great 19th century martyrdom story, I suppose. Certainly that's how it's perceived now. There was the film with Stephen Fry's Oscar Wilde. And Oscar Wilde is now, I would say, seen across the Western world as this great martyr in the cause of yeah. gay rights, isn't he? I mean, that's yeah. pretty much how... He's seen as the sacrificial victim, destroyed by a repressive, old-fashioned, puritanical puritanical establishment, which, as we will see in these episodes, is actually not quite right. The story is much more interesting and more complicated, isn't it? 
So <laughs> you criticize me for saying things that are <laughs> things are always more complicated than they seem. Yeah. Well, Dominic, yes, as Algernon said in the passage of importance being earnest we just opened with, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. Very um, good. And in this case, it's absolutely true. So, Tom, Oscar Wilde, born in Dublin in 1854, the son of an Ireland's leading ophthalmologist and Lady Wilde, so that's Sir William, his father, and Lady Wilde was a, a nationalist poet under the pen name Speranza. So give us a sense for those people not massively familiar with him and his work, why he mattered in the late 19th century and what he, you know, why do we remember him? Why was he such a big figure? So he's intellectually very brilliant. He takes uh, degrees at, at Trinity College Dublin, which is, the, of course, the Protestant university in Dublin that we were talking about um, only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he then goes to Oxford, does classics, wins all kinds of prizes there. And he leaves and becomes a kind of, he sets himself up really as a kind of professional aesthete. Yes. To the degree that Gilbert and Sullivan write an opera about him. And they then take it to America. And Wilde goes to America with the opera. And he kind of famously arrives wearing all kinds of incredible clothing and is asked, you know, does he have anything to declare? And says, I have only my genius to declare. Which is what you said to the immigration official That yesterday. is exactly, yes. And was then you know what I said away. To the, do you know what I said to the, the immigration official said to me, which one are you? Because we'd had to explain who we were. He said to me, which one are you in the, uh, in the partnership? You know, are you his boss or is he yours? And I said, oh, we're, 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 I'm not his boss. And he said, well, which one are you? I said, I'm the funny one and the <laughs> one who knows about history. He found that very entertaining. Did he? Yeah. So you declared your genius, Dominic. Exactly. Very nice. Exactly. Mr. Williams. Just so, shout out to Mr. Officer Williams of the uh, US Border Force. So Wilde did not need a straight man, as I do. Um, <laughs> so he just came on his own. He kind of became kind of international star for being witty, for being funny, for, for you know, incredible kind of intellectual brilliance. And his works, you really rate his works. You know, it's not just about the persona. You think what he produced were works of tremendous literary elegance. Yes. So he, he comes back to Britain. He Amazingly, he becomes the editor of the Ladies' Magazine, and he turns it into a kind of proto-spare rib. So he's very kind of progressive, yeah. um, very kind of feminist. And then he gets bored of doing that. And he, from basically from kind of 1890 onwards, he embarks on kind of one of the great sequences of literary successes in British cultural history. So he produces a novel, Dorian Gray, which yeah. will feature in, in the story of the trials because it's about a beautiful young man who is up to all kinds of sinister things that Wilde doesn't specify in the novel. And he has his picture up in the attic, which all the kind of depravity and, and evil that he's doing is reflected in the painting. Dorian Gray maintains his beauty throughout. He writes a famous tragedy, Salome. He writes a series of brilliantly sophisticated and witty essays. And he writes a series of comedies, Lady Windermere's Fan, A Woman of No Importance, and the most famous one of all, The Importance Being yeah. Earnest, which is probably the lightest, funniest, freshest comedy in English, I would say. But let's get into the other side of Wilde's life. So, well, or it isn't really another side because, of course, it's reflected in his writings. So, obviously, because this episode and the next episode are about his trials. There's going to be a lot of sex. So this probably isn't one for the kind of five and six-year-old listeners. But the interesting thing about Wilde, I discovered from Matthew Sturgis's biography. So at university, and as a very young man, he's actually sexually very abstemious. There's actually no hint of... People say of him... His he's prim, isn't he? Say of him, he's very prim. Yeah. They talk of his peculiar refinement of nature. One of them calls him one of the purest-minded men that could be met with. And actually... 
you know, even as he's establishing his reputation as an aesthete, there is no hint of scandal. No, he marries, and he marries Constance, Constance yeah. Holland. Constance Holland, exactly. No relation. And they have two children. But the turning point seems to be, so in 1886, so just at the point where he's about to embark on this period of extraordinary literary output, you know, the high point of his genius, yeah. as it were, yeah. he meets a 17-year-old, I mean, we would say a boy or a young man, called Robbie Ross, who is at a crammer school. He's preparing for Cambridge. And he is... Afro proud. He is, exactly. He is what we would now call gay. He's completely comfortable with it. He's admitted that side of his nature to himself. And as far as we can tell, he seduces the old, much older Oscar yeah. Wilde. He introduces him to this side of his nature. Yeah. And, and Wilde discovers he really enjoys, enjoys it. it. And I think he enjoys it on a physical level, but I think he enjoys it also on an emotional level. Because if you think of the plot of Dorian Gray, the idea of secrets and kind of a sense of elevated knowledge amplifying your status is something that he really enjoys. And the great theme of Wilde's writing really is the fact that life is always paradox and, yeah. and that it's impossible to pin a person down. If you can pin a person down, then that person is basically dead. So he's always looking for ways to kind of complicate who he is and what his relationship is to his writings and to his kind of, you know, the, the world in which he's situated. And I think that he had studied classics at Oxford and he identifies very, very strongly with the notion that we talked about actually in our previous episode about Hadrian Antinous, the idea that the Greeks had an elevated understanding of what sexuality could be and that yeah. this was focused on same-sex relationships. And so he comes to identify this, I mean, he, he rapidly becomes very, very promiscuous. And yes. he seems to have identified this with the kind of cultural superiority that he had obtained by studying ancient Greek. Yeah, he thinks he's in the tradition of the Greeks. There's a kind of platonic ideal of love, which is represented by the love of two men. He thinks that Shakespeare... Yes. He looks into Shakespeare's sonnets. Michelangelo. Yeah. Marlowe. It's not just that he physically enjoys it, as you say. It's that it appeals... It elevates him. Yes, it elevates him, exactly. Now, the interesting thing is that this is 1886. One year earlier there had been a change in the law. So since 1533, the Buggery Act passed under Henry VIII had made sodomy, the detestable and abominable vice of buggery, as it was called in the act, had made it a capital crime. Obviously, by the mid-19th century, people are no longer being executed for it. They're being sent to prison. But in 1885, and it's a very complicated story, so we'll just give a kind of simplified version. There was legislation which was actually about texting women because there was a great obsession at the time with what people called the white slave trade and young girls being trafficked. And a liberal MP called Henry Labouchere introduced an amendment. It's still debated by historians whether he was sort of messing around and wrecking the bill. He thought he was wrecking the bill or whether he genuinely believed it because he was a radical. He was a, a sort of tub-thumping campaigner. But this amendment criminalized not just sodomy, but any what they called gross indecency of one male person with another male person. It made it a misdemeanor. So it's not a crime. It's a misdemeanor. And this maximum sentence is two years with or without hard labor. So in other words, whereas previously you had to be, I mean, to be blunt about it, you, you had to be convicted of penetration mm -hmm. to get into trouble with the law. 
And then you get life imprisonment. And then you get, yeah, a variety of sentences. But from 1885, so a year before Oscar Wilde discovers this taste, as it were, any form of interaction, so any kind of messing around and fumbling and whatever, is now liable for prosecution. And I think that that only enhances the pleasure for Wilde. So he will come to talk about his relationship with kind of male partners as feasting with panthers. And I think that for Wilde, that sense of danger absolutely amplifies the pleasure. So he will call his series of relationships with young men feasting with panthers precisely because it is so dangerous. That is clearly, I think, a crucial part of this story. The story of Wilde's trials are situated against this change in the law. But Dominic, I think there's also another potentially even more intriguing aspect, which is a crucial shift in the understanding of how sexuality functions, of what sexuality actually is. And we are the heirs of this revolution. And it's, the revolution has triumphed so completely that perhaps we don't even realise that there's been one. Yeah. So essentially, that law of Henry VIII that you mentioned, what that is doing is operating on an assumption that sexual acts are moral crimes, that they are deliberate actions taken by sinners who are so depraved, so evil, so much the creature of their lusts that they're not willing to operate within the, the kind yes. of the guidelines that God has set. So it's moral. And they're what you do rather than what you it's what, are. So it's what you do. So there is no concept that you might, for instance, you might be gay. Yeah. There's no concept of that at all. But in the second half of the 19th century, this has begun to change. And what you see is the kind of the medicalization of what had previously been something that was seen as being a moral offence. And this is particularly associated with German psychology. And it's Germans who coined the phrase homosexuality. Yeah. So it, it's a kind of portmanteau word, mixture of Latin and Greek, like television. And the guy who popularizes it is a German psychologist called Richard von Kraft-Ebbing, who writes this great book about it called The Psychopathia Sexualis, which is translated into English in 1892. So right. that's three years before Wilde goes to trial. And the thing that's interesting about this is partly that Kraft Ebbing is kind of casting homosexuality, this idea that people have a, a particular condition, a kind of morbid condition, as he describes it, as a disease, as something that is as a morbidity. And therefore, there is a hint in Kraft Ebbing that people should be treated with sympathy. And furthermore, by the end of his career, Kraft Ebbing has come into such kind of contact with people who come to identify themselves as homosexual, that he's arguing that it should be decriminalized completely and that people who are homosexual can lead kind of the equivalent of a married life. So he's always kind of prefiguring gay marriage. Now, this matters, I think, for Wilde because even as he is sleeping around a lot with young men, mm -hmm. kind of casual affairs, he does meet the great love of his life, who is Alfred Lord Douglas, yeah. the son of the Marquis of Queensbury. And this sense that homosexual love can be something that is dignified, that it is something that is noble, that it is something that is pure, perhaps even purer and nobler than a kind of conventional heterosexual relationship, is something that both Wilde and Bosey, his name for Alfred Douglas, really, really get into. And it kind of fuses with this Greek Roman okay. idea. Well, before we get into that, before we get to Bosey, let's get to the end of the 1880s. So Wilde had sort of had discovered this taste, as it were, if that's, I mean, that's obviously not the right expression, but you know what I mean, in 1886. Quite quickly, 
he becomes increasingly reckless. So he's having assignations with much younger men, men 18, 19, 20, 21. He's in his mid-30s. And what's interesting, so we have this image, I think, Tom, of the late Victorians, of the sort of the world of the criminalization of homosexual behavior. We often think of it as almost totalitarian in its repression. But that's not quite right. So Wilde is obviously getting away with this behavior. It's an open secret in literary and theatrical circles in London and indeed elsewhere. So rumors kind of spread. So when his book, The Portrait of Dorian Gray, which you mentioned earlier, when that comes out in 1890, it's interesting how a lot of the reviews of Dorian Gray see it against the background, I think, of this kind of reckless behavior. And of... So here's the Daily Chronicle. The Daily Chronicle says of Dorian Gray, it's a poisonous tale spawned by the leprous literature of the French decadence, heavy with the odors of moral and spiritual putrefaction. We've all had bad reviews like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what a lot of people say about this podcast. Um, here's a much more interesting one. The Scots Observer says... It's the kind of tale that would appeal to none but outlawed noblemen and perverted telegraph boys. Now, why perverted telegraph boys? Well, because a year earlier in 1889, there has been a scandal called the Cleveland Street Scandal when a homosexual brothel has been exposed. Telegraph boys, so basically messenger boys, are selling themselves to aristocrats. So the most famous example is a guy called Lord Arthur Somerset, who is the equerry to the Prince of Wales. He actually fled abroad to avoid prosecution. So when the paper says this is a tale that will appeal to telegraph boys... They understand exactly what the code is in the picture code. of Dorian Gray. And many readers will also yeah. say, ah, so now we know. And of course, the thing about the telegraph boys and the aristocrats, also is there's something else going on there, which is this suspicion throughout the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s. We talked about it with the Kaiser actually in Germany, Tom, this suspicion, which is very widespread in the Western world, that rich and powerful people are part of this sinister homosexual elite who are secretly having assignations with yeah. rent boys. I mean, this is all around in that kind of late Victorian Edwardian world. And again, that feeds into the idea that there is something elevated about Greek love, right. as both Bosey and Wilde would call it. So Bosey kind of celebrates what he calls a frank paganism because you have to have, you know, to study Greek and Latin at Oxford or Cambridge, you have to have the education and the class and the background to do it. So let's talk a little bit about Bosey. Bosey is Lord Alfred Douglas. He's the third son of the Marquis of Queensbury. So he's the, the aristocrat who codifies the rules of boxing. Bosey had... And he's very much the kind of man who you would associate with codifying the laws of boxing. He's got tremendous side whiskers, hasn't he? And he's terrifying. Yeah. He's a sort of hulking figure yes. who crosses London, falling out with people. He's a very keen secularist, Tom. Yes, so he, he disrupted an Alfred Lord Tennyson yes. play yes. because it had a disobliging portrait of an atheist. And he yes. had been thrown out of the theatre for shouting. So he's a very strange figure, the Marquis of Queensbury. Eccentric, maverick, badly behaved. Dangerous enemy to have. Yeah, very dangerous enemy. So Wilde meets Bosey, who's 20, in 1891. They start an affair in 1892. But I think, Dominic, important just to emphasize that Bosey is much more experienced yes, you're than right. Wilde yes. in terms of gay relationships. Yes, he is. So he's been having relationships at Winchester at school and at Oxford. They immediately strike up. I mean, what some people... So, I mean, I'll put my cards on the table. I think Bosey was an absolutely terrible, terrible man. Terrible piece of work. Yeah. 
Yes. And they strike up what I think a lot of people, including some of Wilde's friends, would say is a toxic relationship. It's a relationship that is very bad for Wilde. So they haven't actually been together very long, as it were. In August 1892, Wilde has taken a house in Norfolk, a sort of summer home for his family. He invites Bosey along. He and Bosey stay there. And Bosey, it's from that point, it seems that Bosey basically introduces Wilde to this world in which Wilde had previously only dabbled, which is the world of there are places in London, you know, despite the fact that homosexuality is criminalized, there are places in London where you can pick up rent boys. There's a roller skating rink in Knightsbridge. A the bar. roller skate. I mean, roller skating. so unexpected. I know. I know. <laughs> it's very 50s America, that yeah. um, Milkshakes. So there's the bar at the St. James's restaurant. If you know, you know. And you go to these places and you pick up 17, 18, 19-year-old young men. And they behave. It staggers me, you know, thinking about this story. They behave with extraordinary recklessness. Yeah. Knowing the climate of the time, they are picking up rent boys. We could give example after example, but the biographies are very similar. These are 19, 20-year-old clerks, office boys, servants, waiters. They're always inferior, socially inferior. But they are behaving, Tom. They are taking rooms at the Savoy and things. There's two brothers, Charlie and William Parker, for example. Bosey lets them sleep in his bed. He lets them sleep in his bed so that the servants will see the next day. Wild at the Savoy, when the pages at the Savoy come to bring him messages, he thanks them by kissing them on the mouth, which they find very alarming. And then he gives them money. Yeah, so Wild's, Wild's approach to these boys, I think you can call them boys because, I mean, they are pretty young, is simultaneously, he is a very kind, he's very generous, he's a great one for handing out silver cigarette boxes. He, he does that all the time. I mean, yeah. he, he behaves well with them in that sense. He's a kind man. But at the same time, this is clearly very exploitative. He is much older. He's much richer. He's in a position of power relative to them. And as we will find out in due course when they are cited in the trial, Wilde's actions with them seems to have caused them quite a lot of psychological So distress. this is a fascinating question, which we, I mean, I guess listeners to the podcast will draw their own conclusions, and that will depend very much on your position, as it were. But obviously, there are two different ways of seeing this. One is to say Wilde is the victim of this incredibly censorious puritanical culture, and he is a martyr. Another way of seeing it, which perhaps people in 2023 might be more inclined to do, is to say Wilde is exploiting a power and wealth. And I think Wilde himself would accept that. So in due course, you know, he says about this time, I grew careless of the lives of others, which doesn't mean that he is regretting it. Because for Wilde, the idea that of paradox is incredibly important. The idea that you can be two things at once simultaneously is the whole essence of his understanding of, of what character is. And also he is very, very committed to the idea that genius and particularly artistic genius means that you are emancipated from the standards of kind of broader, more conventional society. So all of this is part of the kind of psychological mix of what is going on. One quick thing, Tom. Some people may be wondering, where's his wife in all this, Constance? And the answer yeah. is, she's at home with the kids. He's constantly saying, well, I have to go to the Savoy. I have to go and... Go and, and so hence the bun breeing thing. I yeah, mean, so, so, so when he comes to write The Importance of Being Earnest, you know, it's on the surface, it seems a completely heterosexual play. But the moment you realise what all these jokes are about, the fact, you know, bun breeing and so on, this is exactly what Wilde yeah. is doing. But Tom... 
I mean, just on Constance, she's always left out of this story. She is innocent of all this. She's, you know, when I say innocent, she has no conception of what is going on. And she is distressed that Wilde is going off and leaving her. And at one point, she, she's still bringing him, by the way, his post. So he will check into a hotel with Bosie Douglas. She will bring him his post. On one occasion, she says to him, when are you going to come home? And Wilde, in that flippant, dismissive way that he has, says, oh, I've been gone so long that I can't even remember the address. <laughs> yeah. And you sort of think there is a sad side it's to that story. It's funny and sad. It's yeah. funny and sad, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, meanwhile, Wilde's name is starting to be right. become tainted by this in the, the view of because the kind of broader so, public. So here's one story. They take a cottage in Goring uh, by the Thames. The vicar comes round one day to, to see Oscar Which Wilde. is very important, being earnest. And Wilde is lying there in the garden with a, just a towel. Bosie is completely naked. They've been dousing each other with the hose pipe. The, a perfectly Greek scene, <laughs> yes. they describe it as. And there are stories that in Goring, it's an open secret at this point. The story goes that at the pub, at the local pub, the people are saying, I'd like to go and punch that Oscar Wilde. He's a terrible man. What are they getting up to in that cottage? So a lot of people now know. And this is very like the plot of Dorian Gray, where the reputation of Dorian Gray becomes steadily more and more evil. And there's a sense in which Wilde is almost kind of reveling in the way that he is repeating the plot of that. But what really turbocharges the sense in the kind of general public that Wilde is indeed feasting with panthers is the behaviour of Bosie's father, the Marquis of Queensbury. Oh, yeah. So the Marquis of Queensbury sees them. I mean, he has met Wilde and he's seen them together. He thinks, you know, my son is, has a friend who is a very famous and important man. But by the spring of 1894, you know, he's heard all the rumours. He writes to Bosie, with my own eyes, I saw you both in the most loathsome and disgusting relationship as expressed by your manner and expression. Your disgusted so-called father, Queensbury. To which Bosie's reply, sent by telegram, is, what a funny little man you are. <laughs> yeah, but Queensbury then says to him, if I catch you again with that man, I'll make a public scandal in a way you little dream of. And a few weeks later, he actually goes around to Wilde's house. This is June 1894. Wilde says to him, are you... I mean, Wilde is so, so reckless. He says, are you seriously accusing me of sodomy? And the Marquis says, I don't say you are, but you look it and you pose as it, which is just as bad. You know, they have this massive argument. Queensbury says to him, if I catch you and my son together in any public restaurant, I will thrash you. So this is, that tells you the sort of man Marcus Queensbury is. Now, even at that stage, Wilde, I mean, just unbelievably self-destructively given what's to happen, is already saying to his lawyers, I'd like to sue the Marquis of Queensbury. You know, I'd like to take legal action against him for libeling me. I mean, this is crazy, given that actually what the Marcus of Queensbury is saying is true. Is true. Yes. So, Tom, I mean, the story gets so, I mean, it becomes the stuff of a pure Victorian melodrama, doesn't it? It does. The first night of the importance of being earnest, yes. the libel case, the trial, and then the subsequent trials. So let's take a break before we plunge headlong into the seething stew of resentments, anxieties, accusations, and high melodrama. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Tom, 
Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking the trials of Oscar Wilde and Dominic. We are approaching the first of those trials, which yes. is when Wilde sues the Marcus of Queensbury, the father of his lover, Bosey, for libel. And it's a kind of mad thing for Wilde to do, isn't it? It's completely <laughs> mad. It's completely mad. So he's been threatened by the Marcus of Queensbury. The shadow, the hulking shadow of this boxing enthusiast is you hanging... never take on a boxing enthusiast. Never, never. It's hanging over him. And yet even now... So, by the way, in the summer of 1894, just after he's had these threats, Wilde is writing the play that we opened with, The Importance of Being Earnest. In Worthing. In Worthing. Which is, so hence Jack Worthing. And here's an example of Wilde's recklessness. He's in Worthing that summer on the beach... He's got Bosey Douglas with him. He's got his family, his sons. They pick up a trio of boys on the beach, most famously a guy called Alphonse Conway, who Wilde calls Alfonso. Alfonso is 16. Wilde invites him out in dinghies and stuff, you know, going crabbing or whatever they do, with Wilde's children. But when they will get back, you know, when the children go to bed or whatever, Wilde will go off with Alfonso and there's a, you know, he will and I quote, take hold of Alfonso and fumble How with him. How old is Alfonso? Alfonso is 16. So right. Alfonso, I think it's fair to describe Alfonso. He's not a young man. He is a boy. And I think from the perspective of 2023, that's a story that makes uncomfortable reading. Don't yeah. you think, Tom, makes uncomfortable yeah. reading? Yeah. And given the circumstances, so he knows this bloke is out there yeah. threatening to thrash him to make a public scandal. I think just crazily yeah. reckless. And so this play that he's written in Worthing while all this is going on, the importance of being earnest, comes on stage at St. James's Theatre, 14th of February, so Valentine's Day, 1895. And it's this shimmering play about people leading secret lives in which nothing is quite as it seems. And it's a triumphant success. It's a brilliant play. Wilde is now the literary toast of London, but this shadow remains because the Marquis of Queensbury has been prowling around the theatre trying to get access. He can't get in, and he has with him a grotesque bouquet of vegetables, yeah. which he, he, he wants to give to Wilde. He can't get in, and so he kind of storms off, uh, <laughs> chattering like a monstrous ape. So, I mean, it's kind of a terrifying figure. Uh, and so that's absolutely, of course, a shadow over the success of the importance of Well, the very next day, Tom, the very next day, Wilde again consults his lawyers and says, I'd like to prosecute the Marcus of Greensby, get him off my case. And so it's two weeks later, isn't it, Tom, that 28th of February, he gets the provocation, the fateful provocation that pushes him over the edge. Yes. So he goes to the Albemarle Club and there a porter hands over this missive this note that has been left for him by the Marks of Queensbury. The porter has very discreetly put it in an envelope while it takes it out. And here is this kind of notorious accusation that Oscar Wilde is a ponce and a somdomite. Yeah, so it's at first that's exactly what Wilde thinks it is. It's ponce and somdomite. But I think I mean, the Marcus of Queensbury has as monstrous apes tend to do, he has terrible handwriting. So I think the consensus is that actually it's posing somdomite or something like this. And Wilde goes to see Bosey and his friend Robbie Ross, the very person who'd introduced him to homosexuality. And they say, yeah, go for it. Prosecute him. I mean, mad, by the way. Completely mad. But the plan is that Wilde and Douglas are going to defend their relationship as something exalted, as something Greek, as something platonic, as something Shakespearean, and make the Marcus of Queensbury look like a kind of gibbering ape. Yeah. It's basically the plan. It is the plan. And, and Bosey... I mean, he says to Wilde, oh, sure, it'll be very expensive, but don't worry, I'll pay for it. My family will hate 
you know, my father, yeah. we'll all pay for it. We will basically put up the money for you to prosecute my father. So Wild issues the writ and Marcus Queensbury is arrested and he's brought to Marlborough Street Magistrates Court and charged with publishing a criminal libel. Yeah. Now, the first thing that Marcus Queensbury does is he engages somebody who will be well known to people who've listened to our recent episodes. So he engages a man who had been at university with Oscar Wilde, who is Edward Carson, later very famously the leader of the Ulster Unionists, the great champion of anti-home rule Ulster Unionism in the early 1910s. Now, this is always this sort of clash of the two men. It's almost always actually presented as a kind of morality story with Carson as the villain. The interesting thing, actually, is that Carson didn't really want to take the case. First of all, he didn't like the idea of appearing against an old school friend. And also, he thought the Marquess of Queensbury's case was too weak. And the other interesting thing is that actually, Wilde's solicitor had wanted to retain Carson for Wilde, but had been beaten to the punch by the other side. Because Carson already has a reputation as this brilliant courtroom performer. Yeah. Absolutely ruthless, devastating, implacable. And it's a bad way for Wilde that Carson is on the other side. I mean, he gets a very, very distinguished defence lawyer, Sir Edward Clark, whose descendant, Tom, is a member of the Rest is History Club. It's wonderful to know, isn't it? Peter Clark, KC. So there you go. So Sir Edward asks Wilde, is there any truth in these accusations, as he has to? And Wilde says, absolutely none. Yeah. And so... Clark prepares his defence on that assumption. On that assumption, exactly. But even at the very beginning, so the committal hearing, that's Saturday the 9th of March, even at that early stage, so when the Marcus Queensbury has been committed for trial, Wilde is making a series of disastrous errors. So he turns up in this dark blue velvet overcoat, a white flower in his buttonhole, you know, the picture of aesthetic dandyism. His answers to the questions are flippant and, you know, are you a dramatist and author? I believe I am well known as a dramatist <laughs> and author. And the magistrate says, just answer the question, you know, yes or no. There's all this kind of thing. Bosey, who's completely deluded, is going around saying everything is splendid. It's going to be a walkover. And actually, most people seem to assume that Wilde's going to lose. So, yeah, even at this very, very early stage, they have a friend called Frank Harris, who's a publisher. And Wilde says to Frank Harris will you give evidence on my behalf? And Frank Harris actually says, yeah, I don't think you're going to win. I mean, everybody knows you're... And starts to suggest, which will become a suggestion that is increasingly made to Wilde, that he should basically run away to France. So even at this stage, some of Wilde's friends are saying, but we all know that you have no case. But Wilde and Bosey, Bosey is such a terrible person, Tom. Wilde and Bosey are just in their little bubble aren't they? They are consumed with contempt for the Marquis of Greensbury. And I think for the kind of the philistinism of British society generally that doesn't have fine aesthetic feelings yeah. and doesn't know what it's like to be Plato or Shakespeare. I think that's yeah. also a part of it. There's a kind of a cultural elitism there. Well, there's an arrogance, actually. And I think that, well, kind you, of could call it, you would call it arrogant. I would call it elitist. I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> You'd call it fine feelings. <laughs> yes, you? Yeah. yes, elevated feelings. But I think given the stakes, given the danger, it's crazy that they are charging ahead as they are. So and it's a Saturday morning, the last Saturday in March, 1895. And the Marcus of Queensbury has to enter a plea of justification. You know, his lawyers have to present his case. And to say why he's justified in making this claim. 
And to Wilde's shock and horror, they say, he thinks it's all going to be, has books. I mean, so self-deluding. Yeah. yeah. And actually they say, we have a list as long as our arm. You know, of all these boys. Of all these boys. Our solicitors have engaged investigators. They have tracked down Edward Shelley, Sidney Mavor, Fred Atkins, Maurice Schwab, Alfred Wood, Charles Parker, Walter Granger, Alphonse Conway. This list of three years worth of assignations. And Wilde is absolutely stunned. And it's at that point for the first time that he thinks, geez, if I lose this case, what will happen is the Crown will immediately launch a case against me. Problem is, is that if he does flee abroad, then that's an admission of guilt as well. And he will, again, he'll be ruined. So either way, both alternatives are disastrous. And so he decides he's the most articulate man of his generation. And I think he views Edward Carson as a second-rate mind. Yeah, he a does. plotter knows him from school and thinks, I'm going to trust my own oratory, my own brilliance, and hope that I can command the courtroom. So the case opens, the full trial opens on Wednesday, the 3rd of April, 1895, at the Old Bailey, at Central Criminal Court in the Old Bailey. For our overseas listeners, I mean, this is the, the great the, cockpit, the of, great cockpit yeah. of the British legal system. You know, that gives you a sense of what a tremendous drama this is. From the start, Wilder's still playing the kind of flippant, the jokey remarks and all this. And he clearly, he has contempt, as you said, for Carson. He thinks Carson's a second rate. He does say to his counsel, no doubt Carson will perform his task with all the added bitterness of an old friend. Yes, and he's right. He's not <laughs> wrong. Because Wilder's getting the laughs in court, but Carson is landing the blows which register yeah. with the jury. Because the jury are North London shopkeepers, all men, of course, as was the way in those days. Wilde is making the jokes. Carson is unsmiling. He is cold. He just asks his questions again and again. So there's a thing right at the beginning. Carson is able to demonstrate that Wilde has been lying about his age. That actually... Yeah. <laughs> How old are you, Mr. Wilde? Yeah. <laughs> Wilde lies. But, but he's, and, and this is kind of riff on a joke in The Importance of Being Earnest, where Lady Bracknell says, that, you know, it's very bad form to give your real age. Yeah. No one does this in polite society. Yeah. But here it's not funny. Because Wilde says, I'm 39. And Carson says, but you're not, are you, Mr. Wilde? <laughs> you're 40. <laughs> and, and right from the start, it makes Wilde look unreliable. It accentuates the age yeah. gap between yeah. him and all these people. But and also then, all his witticisms are so brilliant. They kind of dazzle but they don't build up a coherent, solid case. No. And Carson, his questions are implacable. Did you ask Wood to your house in Tite Street? Was your wife away? Did you have immoral practices with Wood? Did you open his trousers? Did Shelley stay all night? Did you put your hand upon his person? Did you kiss Conway on the Lansing Road? Again and again, names, dates, places, and the impression is, as you said, it's one of complete implacability. Wilde makes this totally catastrophic error, doesn't he, Tom? Yeah. They move on to this guy who's a servant called Walter Granger, who was 17, who Bosey had interfered with. Carson, did you kiss him? Wilde says, oh, no, never in my life. He was such a peculiarly plain boy. Kind of flippant witticism, tossed out. And Carson, he was what? And then Wilde starts to stutter and says, oh, his appearance was so very unfortunately ugly. I, I pitied him for his appearance. Very ugly, says Carson. And then, why did you mention his ugliness? And he says that question. It's very Jeremy Paxman, which our British yeah. listeners will recognize. It's a tigerish interviewer. He says again and again, why did you mention his ugliness? Why did you mention his ugliness? 
again and again and, and while and while complete so you sting me and insult me and try to unnerve me and at times one says things flippantly when one ought to speak more seriously i admit it yeah you f- have the sense here that wilde is suddenly realizing that wit is not enough now there's one other moment at this point in the carson interrogation which is day two of the trial carson reads out the letters of the marquis of queensbury attacking wilde and in one of those letters Queensbury has described Wilde as a damned cur and coward of the Rosebery type. Lord Rosebery is the leader of the Liberal Party and Prime Minister. So around Lord Rosebery, there have been swirling for months allegations and rumours that he too is gay. I mean, amazingly, Dominic, there is a further connection here with the Marquis of Queensbury, right? Exactly, because the Marquis of Queensbury's eldest son, Viscount Drumlinrig, had been Rosebery's private secretary. There had been allegations about the relationship between them, and Lord Drumlin Rigg had been shot. Well, it's described as a mysterious shooting accident. A mysterious shooting accident. (laughs) And people said, is this because he and Rosebery were having an affair? So at the point at which that letter is read out in open court, the Prime Minister, Tom, now, Wilde is quite close to the Liberal top brass. He's friends with Asquith. He's had dinner with the Home Secretary, Herbert Asquith, the future Prime Minister. At that point that that is read out in open court, Suddenly, this is no longer just a sort of moral issue or a scandal about a celebrity. It's political. And the government, you know, immediately, they're like, oh, no, because now we are involved and we cannot go easy on this. You know, if Wilde doesn't win and if we don't act, people will say you were trying to cover up the fact that he's part of this conspiracy with the prime minister, this sodomitical enterprise or whatever people would have said at the time. So suddenly, this now has this other dimension. So this is all very, very bad for Wilde. So there's one other thing on day two. Our club member, Peter Clark, pointed this out to me, sent me an email about this. At this point, Wilde says to his barrister, Sir Edward Clark, actually, there is something I didn't tell you. I was turned out of the Albemarle Hotel in the middle of the night and a boy was with me. It might be awkward if they found out about it. And it's at that point that his own barrister, Sir Edward Clark, clearly thinks, oh, geez. You know, he Mate. has... Yeah, why did you not... You know, yeah. this is not good. You have clearly been lying to me all along. So on day three, first thing that next morning, Sir Edward Clark asks for a conference with his client and says... I've been thinking overnight, this is a disaster. You are going to have to withdraw from the prosecution. There is no way we can win. Probably the best thing is for us to try to do a deal. And Clark goes to see Sir Edward Carson and says to Carson, look, Wilde will drop the case. You know, can you do your best to make the Marcus of Queensbury pursue this no further? And it seems that Carson says, I'll do my best. I can't guarantee it. But Carson later says he did not want Wilde pursued over this. Yeah, I think it's absolutely plausible. I know a lot of historians now view Sir Edward Carson as a baddie because of his role in the Home Rule crisis. And unless, of course, they are sort of... Hostile unionists. Yeah, they're hostile unionists, exactly. So Sir Edward Carson gets a generally bad press, but I think it's very plausible that he did say, sure, we'll try to do a deal. Yeah. I don't want to pursue my old classmate. Of course, the Marcus of Queensbury, this great chattering ape, He's not in favour of that. It's not a man in favour of doing deals. <laughs> no. He wants to destroy Wilde and destroy yeah. his own son, actually. I yeah. think to some extent. I mean, there's partly an issue of him wanting to save his son, but also his son has been so rude to him. The Marcus of Queensbury has been maddened by his son's conduct that he is determined to 
to pursue it. So this is exactly what happens. So Wilde drops the case, but straight away, mention Lord Rosebery, Queensbridge solicitor sends the Crown prosecutor a transcript of the trial, a transcript of all what their witnesses have been saying, all the boys. The government's top brass are kind of meeting in, in sort of emergency conclave. Herbert Asquith, the Home Secretary, the Attorney General, Sir Robert Reid, the Solicitor General, Sir Frank Lockwood. So when people tell the story of the trials of Oscar Wilde, the instinctive way of doing it is to say he's the victim of a repressive, cruel, puritanical establishment. But these people know Wilde. Asquith had had him round for dinner. And they are in a position where they think, we cannot let this go. You know, he has broken the law. He appears to have broken the law. Our prime minister has been dragged into it. Dominic, the intriguing detail that at this point, and for the duration of the trials that follow, Rosebery seems to be basically kind of out of action. He seems to have had a kind of breakdown. Yeah. Unexplained. Nobody knows what it is. But it is a kind of intriguing, very suggestive detail that this exactly maps onto the process of the trials. Exactly. And so Asquith, as Home Secretary, he agrees that to apply for a warrant for Wilde's arrest. He gives orders that if Wilde tries to leave the country, he should be stopped wherever he is found. But again, there is this kind of amazing detail that the magistrate who issues the writ, he finds at what time, when does the train leave that will link up to the ferry that will go over to France? And he issues it for 15 minutes after that train. Right. So I think, Tom, actually, and this will surprise, I imagine, a lot of people who think they know the story. I think there is an argument that actually, far from wanting to hammer Wilde, the establishment are actually giving him slightly special treatment. They want him to get away. They've had dinner with him. They like him. They're the kind of people who go to see his plays and find them funny. I don't think they are actually trying to make an example of him. But I think also there is this kind of, I think the whole Rosebery thing, I think is not wholly implausible that Rosebery is somehow mixed up with this and that maybe the Marcus of Queensbury has incriminating evidence showing that. You're right. I think that's absolutely very plausible. But Wilde doesn't go, does he, Tom? He's paralyzed. I mean, it's extraordinary. He's seized by this, this passivity, this inertia in the face of disaster. He could have taken the boat train to France that night, but he doesn't. He's still in, where is he? He's still sort of He's hanging around. He's at the Cadogan Hotel. With Bosie. Yeah. Drinking hock and seltzer. Hock and seltzer. Shall we finish this episode by reading the account of what happens that day that was written by John Betjeman? The Poet Laureate. Tom, I mean, you asked that question as though there's some possibility that I could say no. You can't say no because I've got it all lined up and ready here. So, so Dominic, we will be back with Wilde's arrest, the two trials, and his conviction and imprisonment. Yeah. Now, Tom, it would be remiss of me not to point out that if you are a member of the Rest is History Club, you can, of course, listen to that right now. And if you're not, sign up at restishistorypod.com. Incredible value. But for now, here is... John Betjeman's great poem, The Arrest of Oscar Wilde at the Cadogan Hotel. A thump and a murmur of voices. Oh, why must they make such a din as the door of the bedroom swung open and two plain-clothes policemen come in? Mr. Wilde, we have come for to take you where felons and criminals dwell. We must ask you to leave with us quietly, for this is the Cadogan Hotel. He rose and he put down the yellow book. He staggered and terrible-eyed. He brushed past the plants on the staircase and was helped to a hansom outside. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. 
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.